0: Hey church, Uh, I know it's been a while since we've done a sermon like this from my office, but the recording of this morning's uh, sermon didn't work out. And I really don't want any of you who weren't able to attend this morning's service to miss out on a single part of our series through Habakkuk, which we're beginning today, because there's only three chapters, so missing one is pretty uh, substantial. Each chapter is important. So you you can call this uh, second service. It's recorded just for you. And if you haven't found Habakkuk in your Bibles, now would be the time. I'm going to read uh, the entire chapter, uh, chapter 1 of the prophet of Habakkuk. And then I'll actually read one verse into chapter 2 as well, and you'll see why. It goes like this. It says, The burden which the prophet Habakkuk saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry, and you will not hear even cry out to you, violence, and you will not save. Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble? For plundering and violence are before me. There is strife and contention arises. Therefore the law is powerless and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore perverse judgment proceeds. And then in verse 5 we have the Lord answer the prophet Habakkuk. This is a different voice. I can't do God's voice. I haven't heard it quite enough uh, but uh, verse 5 says, Look among the nations and watch, and be utterly astounded. For I will work a work in your days which you would not believe though it were told you. For indeed I am raising up the Chaldeans, a bitter and hasty nation which marches through the breadth of the earth, to possess dwelling places that are not theirs. They are terrible and dreadful. Their judgment and their dignity proceed from themselves. Their horses also are swifter than leopards and more fierce than evening wolves." Their chargers charge ahead, their cavalry comes from afar, they fly as the eagle that hastens to eat. They all come for violence, their faces are set like the east wind, they gather captives like sand, they scoff at kings and princes are scorned by them, they deride every stronghold for they heap up earthen mounds and seize it. Then his mind changes and he transgresses, he commits offense, ascribing this power to his God. And then we have Habakkuk again addressing the Lord. He says, are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have appointed them for judgment. O rock, you have marked them for correction. You are of purer eyes than to behold evil, and cannot look on wickedness. Why do you look on those who deal treacherously, and hold your tongue when the wicked devours a person more righteous than he? Why do you make men like fish of the sea, like creeping things that have no ruler over them? They take up... All of them with a hook, they catch them in their net and gather them in their dragnet. Therefore they rejoice and are glad. Therefore they sacrifice to their net and burn incense to their dragnet. Because by them their share is sumptuous and their food plentiful. Shall they therefore empty their net and continue to slay nations without pity? I will stand my watch and set myself on the rampart and watch to see what he will say to me and what I will answer when I am corrected. Let's pray for this. Lord, we want to receive your word. We're not here to judge it. We're placing ourselves under the authority of it. And, and as we see in the book of Habakkuk, a, a man of God that has questions about the methods of God, uh, we just want to be humble, and we want to come to you knowing that your ways are uh, higher than our ways, that, that we're not assuming that you would be the person that always agrees with us and our way of doing things. Um, we want to be submissive to you, receptive to you, Uh, hearing what you have to say to your church in Jesus' name. Amen. So Habakkuk. uh, Habakkuk is a special book. It's, It's a simple conversation between a struggling prophet with the God who does not struggle. Um, and, and Habakkuk does struggle a lot in these three short chapters. It's a book only three chapters long, but it's quoted three times in the New Testament, which is pretty significant for a book of this size. It seems to have had a significant influence on the thinking of the Apostle Paul, who quotes from Habakkuk, and Paul's quotations of Habakkuk, we know, had a profound influence on Martin Luther and other Reformers that came after. Uh, long before that, the, the this small book held the attention of the Qumran community, responsible, that was the, the religious sect that was responsible for preserving what we now call the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, among the biblical scrolls discovered there have been found complete commentaries on the book of Habakkuk. And so people come to this book and they notice there's something here. There's something worth seeing in this. It's just three chapters and there, there's struggle and tension, but but this short book packs a punch and has a way of catching and holding your attention. The premise is simple. The organization is simple and familiar. Habakkuk is troubled by what he sees in the world. And he is troubled by what he sees as God's response or lack of response. The world, as it appears to Habakkuk, is evidence of maybe God making some bad decisions, or at least taking his time making good ones. How could he do this? How could he not do that? Um, Again, the organization of the book is is fairly simple. Habakkuk makes his complaint in chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. God answers in verses 5 through 11. Then Habakkuk offers his second complaint, and God answers in chapter 2. And then in chapter 3, where the book comes to a conclusion, we see Habakkuk praise God. I want you to have this formula in mind, and have this end in mind. Because when we wrestle with these questions of how could a good God allow bad things, it's it's important that we don't spend all the time in chapter 1 listening to ourselves complain. We need to know that chapter 3 is coming, and it is the end intended by the Lord. So let's actually begin at the end, shall we? Verses 17 and 18 of chapter 3 are really too good to put off for uh, the week after next. We need to have the final word in our minds as we begin to look at Habakkuk's complaint. Chapter 3, verse 17 through 18. This is, this is where Habakkuk will end up after this dialogue with the Lord, this, these struggles with what he sees God do. Habakkuk says this, Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, Though the labor of the olive may fail, and the fields yield no food. Though the flock may be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The book ends. It doesn't end with answers. It it, it ends not with all the answers, but it, it does end with all the joy. And... You might find that this book is, is very much like, um, say, the book of Job. Um, both have arguments with God and then God has a final word. Um, bo- both are what are called uh, theodicy, not the odyssey like Homer and the Iliad and things like that. But theodicy. A theodicy is an attempt to reconcile the goodness of God with the evil in his creation or to put it in the exact dictionary terms, the vindication of divine goodness and providence in view of the existence of evil. Now the book of Job, of course, takes 50 chapters to do it. Habakkuk takes three chapters, which is one of the reasons we're studying Habakkuk now and not Job. But in in Job, you see, of course, terrible things happen. And then Job makes his, his complaints, his arguments. And then in the end, God speaks. And Job responds well. Well, we have the same sort of formula here in the book of Habakkuk. And in the New Testament book of James, it says this about Job, though you can see that it has some application for the book of Habakkuk too. In James chapter 5, verse 11, we read, You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. That's the end. For us to see, for Job to see, for Habakkuk to see, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. You now, the, the prophet Habakkuk will see, in the end, uh, enough of a glimpse of what James calls the end intended by the Lord, and it leaves him nearly breathless in worship. That's the end of the book. He's not quite there at the beginning of the book. So let's go back to the beginning. The beginning doesn't, it doesn't begin with joy. It begins with a burden. Verse 1 says, the burden which the prophet Habakkuk saw. I really like the New King James here. I'll be reading the ESV a lot through uh, this study. They just translate some of the phrases um, really well. But the New King James here keeps the word burden rather than oracle or prophecy. Now, all those definitions are accurate translations of the word because there is a sense in which every prophecy is a burden, Read Jeremiah. You see that he is called to prophesy, and he resists, but the weight of glory is too much. After years of prophesying to an unsympathetic audience, and by the way, Jeremiah is prophesying to the people after Habakkuk, when the decline of the nation is really coming to a head. But Jeremiah, after preaching, prophesying for years to uh, to people that are not willing to hear what he has to say, He tries to back out, and he says, I won't prophesy anymore. But it says that the word of God burned within his bones. It wasn't something that he could just shrug off. It was a burden that rested on him. Peter, the apostle Peter, says that no prophecy is of private interpretation, but holy men of God were moved by the Holy Spirit. That word for moved is used in Acts when referring to a cyclone that overpowers whatever dares come into its path. That's prophecy. It's heavy. It's a burden. Now let me tell you how this burden came into being. Habakkuk is writing at the end of his country's existence. For Judah and Jerusalem, it's the end of the world as we know it. This is shortly before Nebuchadnezzar would come in and tear Jerusalem apart, piece from piece, piece by piece. He had, he had probably, uh, he Habakkuk, had probably been a prophet during the reign of Josiah, Who was a good king, a righteous king, and he was actually the last good king that Judah had. But following Josiah's death, his son Jehoahaz, the king, uh, he he was king for just one real quick second, and then his his brother came in. uh, Jehoahaz was removed. His brother Jehoiakim becomes king, and both of them did evil in the sight of the Lord. And so Habakkuk has witnessed. The fall of his nation. His nation has has slipped into moral decline. If you want a lot more on this, then uh, come on Wednesday or Thursday or Bible, midweek Bible studies. We're finishing up the book of 2 Kings and we'll take this all in, its, in in all its gritty detail. Habakkuk, but he would have remembered what some would have called the good old days when Josiah was king and the temple was restored and and, and think times were good. And he would have he would have witnessed the decline in society and the decline in government. And now he has the keen misfortune of seeing how it all ends. He has a burden for the culture around him. Now the prophets were given visions of the future, you know this. But that's not all prophecy is. It's an important part, but it's not everything. Habakkuk is going to see the future, but his initial burden is for the present. He labors and struggles for the the moral depravity around him in Judah. And he cries out to the Lord, and then the Lord gives him a vision of the city's destruction. He sees the future, he sees the destruction of the city he loves at the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. So you see why in verse 1 this prophecy is called a burden. It's something heavy to hold, it's not something easily shrugged off. This is the future that Habakkuk sees, and he doesn't like it. Now again, before he sees the future, the first thing he sees is simply the moral decline around him. Verses 1 through 4, which I'll read again, is not a complaint against the bad guys outside, the oppressors from Babylon and Chaldea. It's a complaint against the evil at home. And he says, O Lord, how long shall I cry, and you will not hear? Even cry out to you violence, and you will not save. Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble? For plundering and violence are before me. There is strife and contention arises. Therefore the law is powerless and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore perverse judgment proceeds. This gives some more of Habakkuk's background. These verses provide some setting. We don't know who his parents were, right? What tribe he was from. We don't know uh, what his hobbies were. But we do know that this is one who cries out to the Lord in his trouble. And has been crying out in his trouble so much so that he he feels spent now. He feels emptied. And now he prays to the Lord, how much longer? How long, O Lord? This implies, of course, that he has been struggling with these burdens for a long time. What has felt, at least, like a long time. What has he been praying about? He's been praying about the sinful society around him. Again, he's not praying about Babylon yet, though that's coming. He's praying about the sins at home. What he's describing is what his neighborhood looked like in Jerusalem. Remember, he had witnessed the moral decline of his own nation. And as a prophet among his people, he would have been the one calling the nation back to repentance. But we know how the story ends. After after Habakkuk's prophecy, Judah doesn't repent. Now, this, this prophet's ministry wasn't just in one direction. Right? He would bring God's word to the people and call them to repentance. But now he's also going to the Lord with the plight, with the concerns and burdens about the people. The burden of the prophet goes both ways. Just as a priest would represent God to the people and the people to God, taking the role of a mediator, foreshadowing Christ, so the prophet also foreshadows Christ. The prophet would declare the word of God to the people, and then they would often appeal on behalf of the people to God as as an intercessor. In verses uh, 2 and following, Habakkuk is telling God the condition of the city. The city that he preaches in. The city that he does ministry in. The city that he has interceded with. uh, Interceded for with, with tears. This is his description of Jerusalem. During the reigns of Jehoahaz and Jehoiakim, there's violence. It's a high crime area. He mentions violence in verses 2 and 3. There's plundering, which the ESV translates as destruction. So just a kind of a, a lawlessness. The societies, sorry, the structures of society are crumbling. This, the, the culture that Habakkuk lived in was a culture of deconstruction rather than creativity. Tearing down rather than building up. He says it's a time of injustice. Verse 4 speaks for itself. I'll read to you uh, out of the ESV. It says, The law is paralyzed. Justice never goes forth, for the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. It's not the tale of two cities, right? Where it's the best of times and the worst of times. It's just the worst of times. It's one city and it's bad. That's it. And Habakkuk asks two questions. He says, Lord, how long? You have to do something about this. And in a the second question in verse 3, he says, why are you making me look at this? Why would you have me see this? Now the first question, How long, O Lord? That's pretty common in Scripture. It appears in the Psalms and the other prophets. The second question is more unique. Habakkuk is not simply asking, Why does evil exist? He's asking the Lord, Why would you have me see it? Now, of course, it's easy and necessary For most of us to put most of the world's suffering out of our minds for most of the time, right? There's bad things out there and we're not always thinking about it. If, If we were able to be mindful of all the evil, all the pain, we wouldn't be able to function. But it is my unpopular opinion that God, who is all beauty, all goodness, all truth, would still guide his people to consider things that would make us ask, why are you having me look at this? If we are called to heal leprosy, then God will call you to look at lepers and touch them. And it's not pretty. If God has called you, and and he has called you to this, to to heal the brokenhearted, well then you will be acquainted with grief, like Isaiah 53 says about Jesus. It it is a truth that should be universally accepted and acknowledged that most so-called Christian art is bad art. In the modern world, at least. There are a number of reasons for this that I won't go into right now, though I'd love to. But one of them is because there is a misplaced, wrong-headed conviction that as good Christian people, we're not supposed to have to look at all the icky stuff in the world. So we talk about nice things, and we avoid uncomfortable topics. And, and we don't want to look at the things that make us ask, Why, God, would you have me see this? And as such, we'll never know the answer to that question. Now, hopefully, you do ask this. Why would you have me look at this? Hopefully, you've asked this question before, probably every year on Good Friday, right? On Good Friday, we ask, why why the cross? Why the gore? The gruesome nature of crucifixion? Why the ugliness? Why the horrors of this world? And why do you have to make me see it? Because we'd rather look away, wouldn't we? But God allows us to glimpse brokenness because it is in the brokenness of the world that that breaks His heart. And and He is training you. He is training you not just in heavenly imagination, but in earthly compassion. He's showing you really the beauties of the incarnation, which I'm excited to look into, like we do every year in, in Advent. Seeing pain lets us know how God hurts. And turning away from pain. Turning your eye away from suffering, from pain, can actually invite curses. And I know that's strong language, and I don't talk like that all the time. You won't hear me say this about anything else, but I read the verse, and I'll just read it to you, and you can see where I'm coming from. Proverbs 28. In Proverbs 28, 27, it says, He who gives to the poor will not lack, but he who hides his eyes will have many curses. Hiding your eyes will from the poor, from the unfortunate, from the suffering, from pain. Habakkuk is prevented now from turning his eyes away. The Lord is revealing things that Habakkuk would rather not see. And you know what? There's plenty in this world that you and I live in that we would rather not see. Our tendency is to look away, but do not be surprised when the Lord says, "I I want you to look at this. I want you to see and I want you to feel my heart and see how this causes me pain. You know, we, we sing, I don't know if we believe it, but we sing it now and then. Break my heart for what breaks yours. Well, if that, that doesn't happen with your eyes closed and singing a pretty song. That happens from going and encountering brokenness. Habakkuk sees sin and its results, and he's heartbroken and he asks God his two questions. He says, how long, O Lord? Which indicates, like, aren't you going to do anything about it? And, he, and then he asks, why do I have to see it? And the Lord answers. And it is not the answer that Habakkuk was hoping for. God says, yes, I am going to do something about it. I'm going to judge it. I'm going to punish. And I'm not just showing you the wickedness. I'm going to show you how I judge the wickedness. And you'll never guess, Habakkuk, who I'm going to use to do the punishing. I'm going to read from verse 5 again on through verse 11. It says, look, this is the Lord speaking to Habakkuk. Look among the nations and watch. Be utterly astounded. For I will work a work in your days which you would not believe, though it were told you. For indeed, I am raising up the Chaldeans, a bitter and hasty nation, which marches through the breadth of the earth to possess dwelling places that are not theirs. They are terrible and dreadful. Their judgment and their dignity proceed from themselves. Their horses also are swifter than leopards, and more fierce than evening wolves. Their chargers charge ahead. Their cavalry comes from afar. They fly as the eagle that hastens to eat. They all come for violence. Their faces are set like the east wind. They gather captives like sand. They scoff at kings and princes. Are scorned by them. They deride every stronghold, for they heap up earthen mounds and seize it. And his mind changes, and he transgresses. He commits offence. Ascribing this power to his God. That last verse is really sketchy. Uh, It's it's a hard to to understand verse in New King James. I'll read it from ESV and it'll make a little bit more sense. Now this look or look and see there in verse 5 is followed by this promise. You wouldn't have believed it if I told you myself. This shows us that Habakkuk wasn't just hearing words of God or getting maybe an impression in his heart or something. God was actually giving him a vision. Habakkuk is seeing the Chaldeans come and destroy Jerusalem, his hometown. He's seeing a vision of his neighborhood being raised to the ground. And God is saying, I have to show you this because you wouldn't have believed it otherwise. Why? Because it would have have seemed like something too bad to be true. You wouldn't have believed it. You would never believe that I, God, a holy God, would take these people, Chaldeans, Babylonians, Nebuchadnezzar and his crew, to come and to knock down my temple in Jerusalem. You would have never believed it. So I had to show it to you. Now let's talk about these Chaldeans. Uh, they would become known as Babylonians. They're the same people. They're described here as brutal and, and strong, they're, they're this conquering force, a force to be reckoned with. God calls them bitter and hasty, not something you want to hear about your new neighbors. Uh, they seize dwellings not their own. The Chaldeans were intent on becoming the new world superpower, overcoming the Assyrian empire, and, and becoming, you know, the, just the, the main power on earth. And, and the way they were going to do it was by simply owning everything. They were going to conquer all known territories. Nebuchadnezzar was building an empire, a a global enterprise. And he wasn't nice about it. It says they are terrible and dreadful. Another translation reads, they are dreaded and fearsome. The nations were terrified of the Chaldeans when they came into town. Verse 7, second half, it says, their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Now that doesn't give the full idea of what's being said. It's not as clear as it could be. The idea of justice and dignity going forth from themselves is that their version of justice and their definition of dignity was not, they were were not derived from any higher transcendent authority. If you ask someone what is right and what is wrong and they say right is whatever I want it to be, well their justice is going forth from themselves. You've got an idea maybe of what the Chaldeans were like. In their conquering, in their warfare, they were not fighting for a higher ideal. They were saying, if we do it, that's right. If it's me, that's dignity. The Amplified Bible says, their justice and authority originate with themselves and are defined only by their decree. Um, God is describing to Habakkuk a people that have values antithetical to his own. They're opposite of godly, and they're very, very good at what they do. God talks about how these guys are good at wiping out their enemies. Um, in verses 10 and 11 uh, from the ESV now it gives a good reading. It says, At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own might is their God. That verse, verse 11, explains verse 7. How could their justice Come forth from themselves. How could their definition of dignity um, just be self-made? It's because their might is their God. Might makes right. If it works for me, then it's moral. Ethical standards aren't standards at all. They are justification for what I've already done. And here's the thing that God is showing Habakkuk. Without the law of God, we'll all end up here. What did Habakkuk complain to God about earlier? He says there's no justice in this city. We have the law, but it's crippled. It's restrained, and the evil encircle the good, and now justice goes out perverted. So, in Israel, in Judah, among God's people, the law had already become uh, just a, a superstition and nothing more. And now God says, "Well, look at these people. Look at the Chaldeans. They just make it up as they go. Their moral relativism is is firmly intact, and they're they're doing fine. They're evil. That's." that's where you would head if I would not judge you. Now again, the end intended by the Lord in chapter 3 is that God is merciful, I would say. The last word that Habakkuk says, he says, if you take everything away, you're still praiseworthy and you are still a God of salvation. And it's an interesting thing that Habakkuk can't see yet, but we've got hindsight and we can, we can look at this. Judah had a problem with idols, right? They would worship other gods. Sometimes they'd veer back and only worship the one true God, but it, it never really lasted. And and no no reforms could hold them in, in true God worship for very long until they spent seventy years in Babylon, where everything's an idol. There's idols here and there and everywhere. After Israel, after the Israelites spend time in Babylon, where where sin is, is thick, they come back and they don't worship idols anymore. God is going to heal them of their idol worship. Now, Habakkuk is complaining right now that there's lawlessness, that there's violence, that there's injustice, and he's talking about his hometown. And God says, I'm going to fix that by turning you over to injustice, lawlessness, violence. And he's showing that without the law of God, this is where you will end up as well. Now, this is a hard lesson for anyone in Habakkuk's position. to to have to swallow. Because his first complaint, of course, was with the evil of his own people. But after hearing about all these evil Chaldeans, he's going to go back and say, no, 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 no. They're too evil for God to use. And the lesson is, evil people are pretty much the only kinds of people God has to deal with. All have sinned. All have fallen short. There's none righteous. The Chaldeans are simply more successful at living out their moral relativism than the Israelites were. They were more honest about their selfishness. More consistent with their godlessness. But this is the hard truth. Without the law of God, the idea of worshiping your own strength in your own way is where people end up. And Habakkuk has already confessed that Judah itself is headed there. So God says, this is the news, Habakkuk. Let me show you. Uh, it's worse than you thought. And judgment is coming. So Habakkuk is arguing now. He's complaining. God answered. Not the way he liked. And Habakkuk is answering back. He's complaining a little bit more. Please note how merciful God is that he allows this kind of dialogue with his people. I mean, think of Abraham interceding for Sodom, right? He says, oh God, if there's just 20 more. Okay, scratch that. I mean, 15? How did, if if there's just five righteous people, you still destroy. And God allows this dialogue. In Isaiah 1, God says, come, let us reason together. He does not have to lower himself to reason with us. He does not have to lower himself to communicate with us in this way. But he does, and he lowers himself even further in Christ, who took on the form of a bondservant, who does not just humble himself to provide us answers or understanding, but becomes a servant to us and washes our feet. So Habakkuk just received this news through a vision, that Judah is going to be judged by some really bad guys. And he can't handle it. It doesn't fit with his theology. So he's going to argue theologically. He's going to present to God what he does know about God. And then he's going to shut up and listen. But he starts in verse 12. This is Habakkuk speaking to the Lord. He says, Are you not from everlasting? O Lord my God, my Holy One, we shall not die. Well, Yeah, yeah, you kind of will. Oh, Lord, you have appointed them for judgment. Oh, rock, you have marked them for correction. You are of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. Why do you look on those who deal treacherously and hold your tongue when the wicked devours a person more righteous than he? Who is he talking about? He's talking about himself. He's talking about Israel. Israel's still better than they are. Why do you make men like fish of the sea, like creeping things that have no ruler over them? They take up all of them with a hook. They catch them in their net. They gather them in their dragnet. Therefore, they rejoice and are glad. Therefore, they sacrifice to their net and burn incense to their dragnet because by them their share is sumptuous and their food plentiful. Shall they therefore empty their net and continue to slay nations without pity? So the, the word picture, he's saying, he says he, after having his vision of the destruction of Jerusalem, he says, we're just like a, a school of fish and we're just swimming around in a circle, but the net's all around us. And you're letting these people take this net and even though you're your God, they're worshiping the net. God, this doesn't make sense. this can't be your team. You can't use Chaldeans to do a, a, a job where where you know that's important to you God, you wouldn't want to get your hands dirty. That's a misunderstanding about God that God doesn't want to get his hands dirty. But Habakkuk's first problem was that there was all this evil, right? in his hometown, and God wasn't doing anything about it. Now God said, I am going to do something about it. And Habakkuk is saying, no, 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 not like that. And and the real objection that Habakkuk has is that the nation God is using to judge his people is worse than the people God is judging. (laughs) That's not fair. Now, it's not in Habakkuk's original prayer in chapter 1, but it seems like we can assume that even though he does want God to deal with Israel's sin, He's also going to want God to deal with those dirty, rotten sinners over there in Babylon, too. It is a long and robust tradition in Israel and in God's people to call out to God and tattle on all those other sinners and ask God to go get them. And I think it would be fine to assume that Habakkuk, when he would hear news about the cruelty and depravity of the Chaldeans, would offer up a simple and pious prayer to a God of justice and say, Oh, oh Lord, look at the evil. You must do something. But now, God is telling him, yeah, I am going to do something. I'm going to use those dirty, rotten sinners, and I'm going to use them as a tool in my hand to accomplish my purposes in dealing with my children. So Habakkuk sees that and he says, no, you wouldn't. He rejects this idea. Why? Because it doesn't fit with his worldview. It does not fit with his theology. Look at verse 13. He says, you are of pure eyes, to behold evil. You cannot look on wickedness. Why do you look on those who deal treacherously and hold your tongue when the wicked devours a person more righteous than he? Now this is Habakkuk's theology. God is pure and God is holy. Is that good theology or bad? Well, I'll tell you. It's good. That's true. Habakkuk is right. How about this next part? And you cannot look on wickedness, true or false? Huh. Complicated. It's not that simple. Habakkuk is right to say that God cannot sin, But he's wrong in saying that God, you know, will not associate with the wicked. Just in a real practical way, we know he can because he's looked at us. We also know that God corresponds with sinners. If you look at the parallel story about God's justice and look at Job, you see that God has a conversation with Satan himself. So what does Habakkuk mean when he says you cannot look at evil? Well, it seems that Habakkuk is of the mind that God, being holy and good, would be too good and too holy to consider the Chaldeans as anything except perhaps kindling. Habakkuk is wrong about this. He doesn't count on how resourceful God is, and he hasn't yet been able to imagine a Messiah who is a friend to sinners. That's even beyond anything he could imagine. And it's interesting to consider that Habakkuk is complaining about the Chaldeans' led by, you know, eventually, Nebuchadnezzar. And you just wonder, what what would Habakkuk have seen if he could have read Daniel, written, you know, decades later, and, and seen that Nebuchadnezzar, after encountering God's judgment, would come into a relationship with the one true God? The book of Daniel says that he does. When Habakkuk thinks about Chaldeans, the only thing he can see is that they are appointed to judgment. Look at the end of verse 13. It says, Lord, you've appointed them to judgment. Oh, Rock, you have marked them for correction. His worldview prevents him from seeing them as anything as useful to God, much less redeemable. That's just another thought entirely. He cannot see that the answer to his prayers for Israel, for Judah, would actually result in the destruction of Jerusalem, When Habakkuk was praying, God, how long won't you do something? He was hoping that God would stop the evil and raise up a deliverer, send some good guys into the story and fix everything. But God's plan this time was to fix Israel with the severe mercy of a Babylonian captivity. This does not fit with Habakkuk's theology. And there's a lot of people, I'm sure, that would have Habakkuk's theology here. It's not too far off from the theology you see the friends of Job preach. Habakkuk is quite a bit better, but both are essentially wrong. Job's friends say, if bad things happen, it is absolutely because of bad behavior 100% of the time. Ah, that's not true. The reverse position is that success is going to be the result of good behavior, which isn't always true. We have the Psalms, do not fret with when evildoers prosper. And we know we need that verse, because sometimes evildoers prosper. But the idea of the the Chaldeans being lifted up by God, which it says that's what's happening here, it does away with this formulaic religion. Again, read the book of Daniel, and you see that God raised up Nebuchadnezzar and made him the most glorious, the most powerful, the most successful king of history. Habakkuk's theology is, is a little different. And he is still operating within a, a limited formulaic framework that does not account for God's reach. Habakkuk says, No, Lord. You can't raise up a wicked person who is doing harm to your people, who hates you. You you can't bless them. That You can't use them. That, that cannot be your will. This is absolutely the theology of many people after virtually every political election, right? How could you, God? You're you're behind this when obviously that person's doing wrong how can you God have the heart of the king in your hand turning it where you will like a river of water when there's there's obviously that's the bad guy are you familiar with this line of thinking this is why God has to tell Habakkuk look I know you wouldn't believe this if I told you so I have to show you and he gives him the vision and it almost seems like Habakkuk doesn't still doesn't believe it or he even though he's seen it, he he, he doesn't understand it. He doesn't accept it yet. So he challenges God. Again, how merciful is our Father? He challenges God, bringing up what he knows to be true about God. He argues theologically. He says, you are everlasting. You are holy. You are pure. And then he, he follows the argument, therefore, God, how can you behave like this? Habakkuk is troubled about a lot of things. <laughs> He is worried and troubled with the evil in his own culture, a culture that, to use the phrase that you may have heard tossed around, it was founded on biblical principles. This is Jerusalem we're talking about. There's the temple there. Habakkuk is troubled that sin has gone unchecked, but when God says, I'm going to do something, it will be checked. Habakkuk is even more troubled by God's methods. He is troubled that God would allow the evil men to rule. He is troubled... With the practices of the oppressors, he is astonished that God would use those who hate Him and everything He stands for, and everything His prophets stand for, in order to accomplish correction for His people. Habakkuk is troubled, and this this may be why Habakkuk is such a good book for us to study. It's not a good habit, of course, to get into to to look at the world and say, "Well, things have never been so bad." Well, I'm, I would say you're taking a very narrow perspective there. Habakkuk had it worse, but On the other side of that, Habakkuk is a book about a troubled man of God. And if you're not troubled, at least sometimes, you're not paying attention. Now, Habakkuk doesn't get all the answers in chapter 1, and neither do we. And we're not going to study chapter 2 until next week. So come back. But we will go into chapter 2, just one verse, to see something important. Because while we won't get all the answers right here of how God, why God, really God, we do see the right way to be frustrated. Habakkuk is a man of God that we can imitate. We see in Habakkuk, especially chapter 2, verse 1, the right way to be troubled. He says, I will stand my watch and set myself on the rampart and watch to see what he will say to me and what I will answer when I am corrected." I love that. We'll start here next week too, but we need to see this here as Habakkuk wrestles with God. He plans on losing. Habakkuk is wrestling with God, and well, we don't know a lot about Habakkuk's personal life, not much more than his name, and the time that he lived. His his name does have some significance. Habakkuk means to embrace. And that's what this book is. It's a it's an embrace, a prophet and his God holding on. It's not a hug, it's not a nice squeeze. This is Jacob wrestling with the angel of the Lord. When when he loses and God wins, as he always does in these situations. You know, Jacob clings to the angel and he says, I will not let go unless you bless me. That's an embrace. And that's the kind of relationship here with Habakkuk and his Lord. Habakkuk is being broken but he is holding on to the one who can bless. Now again, if you're not frustrated with the world, you're not paying attention. If you're dealing with that frustration your own way, then you're normal, but you're wrong. The right way to deal with those frustrations is not your own way. It's it's God's way. It's, in, it's Habakkuk's way. It's in a close relationship with God where you cling, where you embrace, and where you plan on being corrected. Wrestling with God is closeness. Wrestling with God may be as close as you can get to Him. And this is the high ground. You notice that Habakkuk takes the high road. He takes the high ground. Habakkuk, he sets himself up on the rampart, the wall of the city. He sets himself to watch. This means he postured himself before God. He put himself in a position to see and to hear Specifically to see and to hear how he's mistaken. Because he knows that if this is your plan, God, and if you're still good, then you got to explain some stuff to me. This is where we're called. Is the world falling apart? Yeah. <laughs> do the nations rage, Psalm 2? Yes. Do pe- the peoples plot vain things? Yes. But do we trust in the Lord? Yes. So we stand and set ourselves in the presence of God humbly expecting correction from him. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the prophet Habakkuk. We thank you that you are merciful with us and we don't understand what you're doing always, but but you're willing to hear our, 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 our complaints, Lord. We pray that we would not shy away from anything that you would show us, anything that you would have us look at so that we can share in your heart. We pray that we would be in a position, we would be holding ourselves in the position before you, God, where we are hmm, where we are willing to be corrected as long as it means we meet with you. Bless your church in Jesus' name. Amen.